This morning, as we come to chapter 2, let me give you just a quick reminder that the Apostle Paul is writing. He's writing around the year AD 60-62. He has been arrested for his faith and is about to go on trial for his life. And with great pastoral concern, he writes to the young church at Ephesus to encourage them. He knows them well. He lived in Ephesus for three years. He established the church there, and he's writing to encourage them. And so we begin Ephesians chapter 2 at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I suspect that most of us at some stage in our life have experienced what it means to move from one apartment to another apartment or one home to another home. And if you have moved house recently, you will know that it can be a pressurized experience. Today, for us, as a congregation, is moving day. Over the last three to four years as a congregation, we have been looking at the implementation of a strategic plan. A plan so strategic that it lays out the spiritual imperatives for our life and ministry. It lays out in detail what our focus will be for the next five to seven years. And as part of that strategic plan, as we are implementing it, a significant part of that plan involved a campus redevelopment. In fact, it's an extensive plan. You're going to hear me talk about it later in the service. Over the last six or seven months, you have heard, no doubt, the presentations given at Sunday schools and given in Sunday mornings in the chapel. Some of you have been to discussion groups and are aware of all that's taking place. And over that period, we've been praying and thinking and anticipating. And we are now at moving day. The next three Sundays, we'll be giving you updates about our capital campaign. Because Sunday, April the 7th, is Commitment Sunday. Say it with me. 
Sunday, April the 7th. Sunday, April the 7th. You're going to have to do better than that. Sunday, April the 7th. Thank you. Choir, what do you think? Did they master it? Yeah, a little. Yeah, I think so. They got there. And that is for us a seminal moment. Because we will know at that point whether we are able to move forward with a remarkable campus development. Facilities that will enable us to carry out all of the ministries we're involved in from children all the way through to our senior adults. I've just left the Ignite service at 10.45. And for the first 10 minutes, I found myself saying, please raise your hand if you've got spare seats beside you. People are still coming in. Three years ago, we were putting out 400 seats. And then 450, and then 500, and 550. There were 600 seats this morning, and people were still having to stand at the back. That is a wonderful problem to have. Our youth group has grown from 65 three, three and a half years ago, and it's now at 200 on a Wednesday night. Our new member classes are growing considerably. Several years ago, we would have 25 and 26 joining at a new member class. Now it's 47 and 50 and 51. In our last class, we had, or last year rather, we had two young ladies in the late 20s who were expecting babies and two retired pastors. Right across the age range, God is at work. And that's the context we are living in. God is moving us and beginning to shape and fashion us to be a church who are life-giving, life-affirming, focused on the gospel in this downtown area, a church who will seek to impact and influence the spiritual heart of this city. We live in a seminal moment. And here is the young church in Ephesus, growing, developing, thriving, a couple of weeks ago when we started our studies in Ephesus, you heard me say that Ephesus was one of the largest and most important, or in fact it was the largest, most important city on the west coast of Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. And here is Paul writing to this young church, encouraging them. And at the end of chapter 1 last week, when Shelton was speaking, he focused on those closing words almost of Paul's prayer. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. What a prayer. In fact, from verse 4 through to verse, verse 3 through to verse 14, in the original language, is one sentence. Paul doesn't stop to punctuate. He doesn't stop for breath. In that first section of chapter 1, his words come cascading out as he thinks of the love and grace and wonder of God. It's almost as if he can't write quickly enough and he finishes with that you may know him better. What a, what a way to end a prayer. If you are sometimes lost for what to pray for each other as a family or for your children or your grandchildren, what a prayer. 
Father, that they may know you better, walk with you, have intimacy with you, sense their presence. That's what Paul was writing to this church in Ephesus. And then as we get into chapter 2, chapter 2 begins in a surprising and stark manner. Begins in a way you would simply never expect it to begin. And notice what he says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Why is this stark? Why is it surprising? Notice the language. As for you, you were dead in transgressions and sin. Paul, of course, is thinking metaphorically of spiritual death. And as you read it, you begin to think, wait a minute, Paul, I thought you were encouraging us. I thought you were building us up. I thought you were strengthening us. This seems a little bleak and stark. As for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins. What does Paul mean? Well, simply this. That sin is so powerful, so potent, that we're tempted to think that sin is something we do. It's an activity. And it certainly is that. But it is never, ever, ever restricted to what we do. It is also who we are. And many of you have heard me say this before, so please forgive me for this. Some of you are already there in your mind and you know where I'm going. But let me remind you, two classical mistakes we make as Christians. We consistently underestimate the power, significance, and gravitas of our own sin. And the power, significance, and gravitas of the love of God. Two cardinal mistakes we make consistently underestimate the power, significance, and gravitas of sin. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Sin is, as we said moments ago, not simply an activity. It's not simply something we do to someone else. But it begins to influence and have an effect on us. When sin first draws us in, it is attractive. It is enticing. It is appealing. It tells us it's no big deal. Everyone's doing it. You'll enjoy this. It's not as bad as everyone makes out. And so you take the first step. And then it begins to be a little more serious. And a little more serious. And a little more serious. And slowly but surely you discover not only is it enticing and attractive, but it's also deceptive and debilitating, and deeply disturbing, and utterly addictive. Utterly addictive. 
And then it begins to impact those you love, family relations, friends at work, people in your neighborhood. And you begin to realize that sin is taking over your life. And not only is it debilitating and addictive and enticing, but deceptive. If you're uncertain, think back just a couple of days to Christchurch in New Zealand when a relatively young man went into not just one mosque but two and executed 50 people. Some of them he shot and then moved forward and shot them several times again even though they were asking for mercy. He set it up on his own camera, I assume, uh, a cell phone to video the whole event. Calmly walked out, went to another mosque, repeated the mayhem and carnage, treating people with utter contempt, and then broadcast it on social media. That's what sin does. That's how powerful it is. In fact, elsewhere the Scripture says there will come a day when we will think that good is evil and evil is good. And in this man's mind, that's exactly what was going on. He was large and in charge. No one would tell him how to live. And how dare these people have different views from him. That's what was going on. We've experienced it and been exposed to it here in our own country on multiple levels. We see it happening in human trafficking. We see it happening in domestic abuse. We see it with alcohol and drug addiction. And sin promises so much and delivers so little. And it affects our behavior, our thought process, our will, our very disposition. And that's why Paul says, look at it in verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. That's how powerful sin is. But please understand this and grasp the enormity of what I'm about to say. If we consistently underestimate the power, significance, and gravitas of our own sin, we also underestimate the power, significance, and gravitas of the love of God. Notice what verse 4 says. And if you underline your Bible, underline the first word in verse 4. But because of His great love for us, God is a second word to underline. God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ. Please hear me. Sin is so powerful it brings spiritual death. And when spiritual death takes over a life, you have no idea that life even exists. It is so debilitating, so deceptive, so enslaving, in utter bondage. And then, and then, the love and grace of God begins to break into our lives. 
and we're exposed to the gospel, and we see him and understand his love, then he touches the soul, and he breathes life into that which was spiritually dead. Please understand the enormity of this. Jesus did not come to make good people better. He came to bring dead people to life. That's the wonder of the gospel. That's why he says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. I have to tell you this. In the course of my life, I have given God reason after reason after reason after reason to give up on me. There are times in my life I've sinned so badly, I thought he would never love me again. And yet he does. He is rich in mercy, rich in love, never abandons us, never walks away from us. That is the power and wonder of the gospel. And an amen belongs right in there. Amen? Amen. That's the wonder of it because he breathes life into us and draws us to himself. And that's why Paul is jubilant as he's writing here. God who is rich in mercy. And notice verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And please understand this, that it is God who takes the initiative. It is God who takes the first step. He's the one who moves in our direction because we are spiritually dead and don't even know he's there. And yet he moves towards us with forgiveness and brings with his love repentance and not alienation, but reconciliation and intimacy. And we know him and can follow him forever. That's the transformation of the human heart. And Paul, encouraging them at Ephesus, is saying to them, I want you to understand the spectacular, unprecedented, unsearchable riches of the love and grace of God. That's what he wants them to remember. And so he writes in these terms. And if you are here this morning and saying, Richard, the last few weeks for me have just been dreadful. I've not been praying. In fact, I've been wondering if I would ever pray again. And I am so frustrated. I can't seem to get my life together. My relationship with the Lord is not what it once was. And I'm just about ready to give up. And if that is you, please hear this. Remember the words of the old hymn. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite 
riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. So infinite, depravity will never exhaust it of its power. That's the wonder of God's salvation. Spend time this week. In Ephesians 1 through 10, read it again. Grapple with the enormity of it. Give thanks for it. And how do we respond as a congregation? Because up to this point, I've been thinking mainly about our individual relationships with the Lord. But what does this passage say to us about moving day? About moving into this seminal moment. This unprecedented opportunity for growth and development that lies before us as a congregation. The construction cost is high. We know that. We're a downtown church. It comes in right at $35 million. And when I talk to bankers and financial people, they say, Richard, relax. It's only a number. Well, it may only be a number to them. It's an enormous number for me. $35 million. That's huge. And yet, what we do on this corner of Washington and Richardson will last for 30 to 35 years. It will impact the next generation and probably the next generation after that. We will have influence and make a difference on the spiritual landscape of this city. That's how important this is. Once in a generation opportunity. We'll probably do it over two phases. We would love, love to have commitments right up there at that kind of figure. But we suspect we'll have two phases. First three years, a year break, and then a second three year. And here is what I need you to be doing over the next few days. As this material comes in and you begin to become more and more familiar with it, please pray. Many of you are already praying. That was the focal point of our Lenten journal this year, was to pray, and we heard Lisa using those themes earlier. Continue to pray. We will never be able to do this in our own strength. Never. Please be praying. First thing in the morning, last thing at night, please be praying. Secondly, be planning. Planning to think, Father, how can I step up here? How can we as a family, how can I as an individual make a difference? Please don't ever give in to the thought that your little contribution will not make a difference. Please don't ever think that. Because when an entire congregation of almost 4,000 people think that, we'll go nowhere. Please be praying and thinking. And thinking how you can give sacrificially. You've heard me say this a couple of times now, and Ruth still gives me a hard time for it, but I'm going to say it again. We as a couple, we're looking at the possibility of new kitchen units and worktops and appliances and things, and we'll simply put that off. Not because we're special or wonderful, but simply because we're part of this congregation, and we'll put it on hold. And the finances we were going to invest there, we'll start to put them in to first prayers. Because we are convinced, as you are convinced, that the greatest need of our city is a church that is life-giving and life-affirming. A church that is steep 
steeped and immersed in the wonder and joy of the gospel. A church that says life doesn't have to be hopeless. It doesn't have to be lonely. It doesn't have to consist of depression and sin and alcohol and drug addiction and domestic violence and human trafficking. There is a better way, a fuller, richer, wonderful way, and it's found in the grace and love of God. That's how important this ministry is. Commitment Sunday is April the 7th. Be planning, be praying, be ready to engage. And just in case you've missed it all this morning, Look at the closing words of the Apostle Paul in the passage we read at verse 10. For there he writes, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Cannot help but wonder, if that is God's word for us as a congregation this morning, as we prayerfully, intentionally begin to pray, and listen, and plan, and engage. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the wonder of the gospel. Thank you that even though we were dead in trespasses and sins. Even though we intentionally sinned against you, you sent your Son into this world to transform us and forgive us, to die for our sins and to take us into a relationship with you. And for all of this, we give you thanks. And may we as a congregation, united together, be prayerful, planning, be fully engaged in all that you're calling us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.